you have your Bibles this morning, please turn to the book of 1 John. We are going to be in chapter 2, verses 18 through 27, continuing our uh, expositional narrative journey through the book of 1 John. I got a phone call on Thursday from my oldest son, and I could tell he was uh, anxious. I could tell he was worked up. He said, Dad, I, I, I just got out of class. He's at the University of Maine. I went to go get in my car, which he just bought uh, two weeks or a week or so before leaving to go to school. That's new to him, a 2016 Subaru uh, something or other. Didn't phrase that. And he uh, said, my rear bumper is ripped off. Someone hit my car when I was in class, and on the right-hand side of the car, the bumper's off, and it's just kind of hanging on a little bit on the left-hand side. What do I do? just turned 21, and, you know, there have been a few times that he's been stranded because of the varying views of health of the vehicles that we've made him drive over the past few years, um, but he's never, this was his first accident, this was his first, like, something, you know, needs to happen here other than dad comes and picks me up and we tow the car home and fix it, and I said, all right, it's no big deal, let me talk you through it. This has happened to me any number of times, <laughs> and I said, this First thing you do is you call campus security, have them come. They're going to collect some information. Thankfully, the young lady who was a foreign exchange student from China left a note uh, expressing her sorrow at destroying his car and with her phone number. And we're going to try and get as much information as we can from her. And then one of two things is going to happen, as you well know. There's either going to be a cash payout right there, like here's a few hundred bucks, here's your bumper fixed, have a nice life. Or we're going to contact her insurance company, and, and they're going to recommend a shop, and he's going to go have it to, to look brand new. But that's what happens. And he's like, oh, okay. He sends me some pictures of what's happening. He calls campus security. Campus security comes. This young foreign exchange student comes with a translator, and they work things out. And, you know, he's scheduled to have his car fixed in, in a week or so after the Thanksgiving holiday. And so for him, it seemed like a really big deal because he'd never faced anything like this before. But you and I both know that he just needed someone to walk him through it. This is what's going to happen. First phone call, second phone call, option A, option B, Bob's your uncle, car's going to get fixed, you're going to be okay. Like, can you drive it home? Well, the cop helped me shove it back on and I got some duct tape and the answer is yes. Well, fine. You'll probably be here next Sunday and still have his bumper duct tape on, but it's okay. Seemed like a big deal. He just needed someone to walk him through it. Someone who had been there before. My first accident was in the bank, it was in parking, uh, DNC Bank, parking lots. And I rear-ended a guy. And that's a whole other tragic story, but you know, I, this has happened. It's happened to you, it's happened to me. Seems like a big deal. He just needs someone to walk him through it. That's kind of the big idea behind the passage that we're going to look at today, because there are three terms that are used in this passage that seem like really big deals. They are not terms that you probably used anytime this past week. Uh, the first term or idea is the end of the world. John starts out by talking about the end of the world. And then he launches right into Antichrist. Again, probably not a term that came up in casual conversation this past week while you were at work or talking with your family over dinner. And then the third term or concept that we're going to find in this passage is anointing. Which again, it's not a term that we would normally use. We're not even really sure what are meant by these phrases. 
they're addressing an issue in the first century church, and so John, as the elder statesman, the grandfather of the church, if you will, is going to talk his loved children through these three big ideas so that they don't freak out. Because it seems like a big deal, seems confusing, seems like we're talking about things uh, that are very confusing and out of the norm, but John knows actually what's going on, and, he's, and, he, and it's for their benefit that they talk about these strange and confusing things. And what's funny with Benaiah is there's any number of times where we have talked him through what happens if you get in an accident. There's documentation in the car, first phone call is going to be to a first responder, second phone call should probably be to mom or myself, and then this is what's going to happen. It's funny, though, that until you're confronted with it, he didn't remember any of those conversations. So what John knew is that the time was coming when they were going to need to know about the end of the world, the role of the Antichrist, and their anointing. So here we go. If you have your Bibles this morning, again, the words are on the screen as well. Uh, John, 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. Hard stop. Let's just stop there. Because the first thought that probably comes to mind is, no, it's not. <laughs> John, you wrote that almost 2,000 years ago. Not only was it not the last hour, it wasn't the last day, it wasn't the last week, it wasn't the last month, it wasn't the last millennium. What do you mean, children? It is the last hour. This is very confusing. Sounds like it's a big deal. Sounds kind of scary. The world is ending. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, Antichrist is coming. <laughs> oh, why would your grandfather sit you down and tell you this kind of stuff? Hey, Grampy, you are not chilling me out right now. The end of the world, the devil's coming. Like, what? How is this helpful to me right now? Can I talk to mom first? <laughs> Grampy, you're a little crazy. Did you take your meds today? What is John talking about when he says, children, my loved ones, my little ones, hey guys, my little guys, hey kids, the end of the world is coming, the, the, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, Antichrist is coming. This is what John is talking about when he refers to this idea of the last hour. And this is what the New Testament means when other people in the New Testament say that the end is near or something like it. In the time of Adam, God had a future plan for the world, and it involved dealing with sin. In the time of Abraham, God had a future plan for the world, and it involved giving his people a fixed future geography. In the time of Jacob, God had a plan for his people. It meant going away from that land for a period of time and experiencing slavery in Egypt. In the time of Moses, God had a plan for his people. It involved receiving the law that his heart would be better known to his people. In the time of Joshua, God had a future plan for his people. It involved retaking the land of Canaan. In the time of Samuel, there was a future plan for the kingdom of for the God's people. It was having a king rule over them. In the time of Saul, who was the first king, there was a future plan. This meant having the Davidic line come into play through David. In the time of David, there was a future plan through the promise of the Messiah, which is clear in the writings of Psalms. During the time of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel, there was a future plan for the people of God. It involved them being taken away to exile and reprioritizing their lives on God. 
and the promise of returning to the promised land. And with all of these major characters and all of these major stories, the future plan had a specific thing that needed to happen to the people of God, as well as the promise of a, of a Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, the One who is coming from God, who will make all things good. And then Jesus came. There's no other plan. For the first time in the history of the world, God's plan has been fully revealed about his kingdom and his hope for humanity. And, and Paul says that up until Jesus, it's been like a mystery what God's future plan was going to be. And all of history has always been looking forward saying, we know that God has done this, but we have a promise that God is going to do something else and things are going to change for us. And then Jesus comes, and now there's no more future plan. There's no more revelatory truth. There's no more. The canon is closed. God's work has been complete. He's perfectly satisfied in the work of Jesus. So if you look at the prophetic time clock, if you look at the history of the world, of things that God wanted to do with his people, they're all done. It's over. The end is near. The next thing that's going to happen is and in the first century church, as you know, during the time of Jesus, it was a very exciting time in the church. There was the miracles of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. What's going to happen next? Well, the Holy Spirit came and indwelt his apostles, and then the church was established. And so there's still this anticipatory wondering, what's coming next? And John says, the end, the end is near. The last hour is here. There is no next. The next stop on this train is the terminal. And so you don't need to, because what was happening was, people with agendas were coming into the first century church and saying, here's what's next. And they had spurious teachings about Jesus. And we're going to see that in the text. And so John is saying, look, the last hour is here. There is no more revelatory truth coming from God. He's perfectly satisfied with Jesus. We're going to see that in the text. And you know it's the end because you're having people come in who are teaching the opposite message of Jesus. And he refers to them as antichrists. And so John begins his text by saying, Children, it is the last hour. God's plan has been complete. There is no new news coming. You have all of the news, all of God's revelations that God has ever intended to give. And as you have heard, antichrists, or those who teach the opposite of Jesus, or those who are false teachers, they are coming. And he continues, Even now, many antichrists have come. We know this, we know from this, that it is the last hour. The very prevalence of false teaching confirms the fact that there's no more truth coming. The very fact that these people are coming into your church with confusing doctrine is the very proof that God has no more revelation coming. And then he goes on to say, well, well, okay, well, you can imagine the church saying, well, well, who are these people? John says, they went out from us, but they did not belong to us, for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. John basically says, the fellowship of a first century church, your fellowship, that you guys consider normal, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the combined saints meeting regularly, is like acid to false teaching. It's not going to gain a foothold in the context of a church. If there is someone who has an agenda, who is teaching false doctrine, 
the purity of the fellowship that you have is going to drive them out. So you will know who a false teacher is if it's someone who claims to have authority in a church, but they're not in regular fellowship, especially if they're not in regular fellowship with you. And so people who know enough about Christianity but have not experienced the power to have an agenda are coming back and giving teachings because they want to sell you something. They want to be known as something that they aren't. But if they're not in regular fellowship, you need to be cautious about these people because the fellowship that you guys have is so strong and so pure that false teachers can't handle being in church regularly. Am I saying that everyone who is sporadic in church attendance is the actual devil? That's absolutely. No, I'm not saying that. I'm sorry. Just to be clear, people who are sporadic in church attendance are not the Antichrist. Well, so-and-so used to come to River Church for a while, and I've only seen them a few times, and so they must be the devil. No. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're the Antichrist. Sometimes people are sporadic in church attendance because they're distracted. Uh, because this is the time of year that they do something other than come to church on a Sunday morning. Whatever it is. This happens. It's real life. It doesn't mean that they're the devil. It means that they're distracted and they're going through a season of life. And when that season of life is over, we hope that they rejoin the fellowship. And we hope that in the future they find a way to remain in fellowship while also pursuing their family pursuits, wherever it was that took them away for a season. We get it. Uh, military service can take us away from regular church fellowship. So sometimes people are not in church regularly, weeks, months, even longer, just because they're distracted. It's a, it's a time of life. Um, I've experienced this personally. There was a time in my life where I didn't want to go to church on a Sunday morning. I'd been engaged in ministry. I'd learned a lot, but I'd also been hurt a lot. And I didn't want to be in church on a Sunday morning. It was my own immaturity. And so I allowed myself to be distracted by work, and I purposely did a work schedule. This is your pastor now, okay? So that I didn't have to be in church on a Sunday morning. I did that for about two years. It felt great. I liked it a lot. And during that time, the Lord healed me, and then I got hired by that church to be a pastor. <laughs> so be careful. If you get distracted and don't come to church, you might end up with a job. And then, you, okay. So anyway, sometimes people don't come to church because they're distracted. It's, it's not because they're the devil. Sometimes people aren't regular in church attendance, and they show up every once in a while because they get hurt. They, they had an experience in the church wasn't awesome. And maybe it was River Church, or maybe it was some other church, and it's, it's just a huge uh, statement of faith on their own behalf. It's just, it's, it's, it's a sweetness and a sensitiveness and a trustingness for them to be in church at all because some stuff went down. And it had to do with the church that they had been attending. And so sometimes people are sporadic in church attendance just because they've been wounded and they've been hurt. They're not the devil. When they come to church, they just need to be loved on. They need to be accepted. They need to be embraced. They need to be prayed for. Uh, they need to be taken care of. They need to be nurtured. They need to experience the opposite of whatever it was that drove them to church in the first place. So sometimes people are sporadic in church attendance because they're hurt. And yes, sometimes people are sporadic in church attendance because they have an agenda. And they find that their agenda has the most attention to it if they are sporadic in their church attendance. And so they'll go on this tour of churches in eastern Connecticut 
and they say that my faith is so strong that I just like visiting a number of churches, but really what they like is the attention that they get when they visit a church so that they have a platform to try and show that they are a church authority, that they're above regular church attendance. They're dangerous. Those people are dangerous. Those people probably have an agenda, uh, and they need to be avoided. Thankfully, I don't think there's many of them. I think that's very rare. I think it's more common that when someone is sporadic in their church attendance or the fellowship of the saints, that it's usually because they're distracted by things in life or they're experiencing a level of wounding and they need healing and our heart needs to be open to these people. And then every once in a while, you might have a chucklehead who considers himself, you know, uh, and, and they're the kind of people, you'll know that you're dealing with someone who could be the kind of person that John is talking about here when they try to tell you something that you need to know and you haven't seen them in three months. Really? You know something I don't know? And where has it been exactly? Well, I've been having my own personal devotions, and the Lord spoke clearly to me that you should... Yeah, I think it might be the devil. Like, we'll still give the devil a cup of coffee, but they're not going to hang out. Why? There's a purity in our fellowship. And if someone is not willing to humble themselves regular assembly of the saints and their praise and worship and prayer and their teaching and programming and ministry, they probably have an agenda. And you'll probably know that because they're probably trying to change your life and you haven't seen them in three months. And John says, there, those people are out there. They claim to have new truth. Be careful of these kinds of people. Uh, it is the last hour, which means you're going to have false teachers because there's no such thing as new teaching. So anybody who says they have a new teaching for you probably someone you haven't seen in a while and it's probably someone who's trying to claim authority over you that it actually has no authority over you whatsoever. I would not be doing my good job as a, an apostle and a grandfather of the faith if I didn't warn my little children about these people that we need to watch out for. How are we doing? Does it, does it kind of help the whole end of the world, Antichrist, like a little bit? Because it's really hard to get past that when you read this passage. End of the world, Antichrist, going on, and so you want to just disregard everything that's in the passage, but hopefully that helps a little bit. So, verses 18 through 19 is kind of John the Apostle saying, hey kids, let me explain you something. And he uses big scary words to get their attention, and then he explains them. What is going on in the first century church? That is actually continuing from time to time today. He continues in the text, uh, however, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One. He goes on to describe another layer of protection that you have by being regularly associated with your local church. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you have knowledge. I have not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? Now he's going to speak to the doctrine of the Antichrist. Now he's going to speak to the doctrine of false teachers. Who is the liar if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah? So who are these people? They're the ones on the tour. They're the, they're the ones that are so spiritual they don't really need to belong to any one particular church. You've known them. They came from you, but then they went out. Now they're kind of cycling back. And they're going to cycle out again. So that's who they are. What are they actually teaching? Well, the liar is, is not the one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah. 
This one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son can have the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father as well. So John is saying in these three verses, verses 20 through 23, hey kids, relax. Because this is what the message is going to sound like. They're going to try and put a little daylight between the Father and the Son. They're going to try and cause a little disunion within the Trinity. They're going to try and say there's some new truth and there's something that you need beyond repentant faith in Jesus. So what did this look like in the first century church? It looked like, hey, I have secret knowledge about Jesus. There is a part of his story that you never heard before, and I'm going to share it to you. And it's called Gnosticism. So let me introduce you into this deep gains of faith, or this secret gains of faith. And it was lies, concocted by people who wanted a false platform of authority. What does it look like today? Well, let me mention a few examples. If someone comes into a local church, uh, because because here's something that we need to acknowledge. Regarding salvation, repentant faith in Jesus plus anything equals false teaching. Kind of summing up those three verses. There's no daylight between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So regarding salvation, repentant faith in Jesus plus anything is, is a form of false teaching. So false teaching that I have heard uh, coming from various churches or individuals or people who were on the tour. Uh, and they claim biblical authority uh, from this from misreading of certain scriptural texts. And so they'll come misreading scripture. They'll say things like, um, true Christians are Christians who have repentant faith in Jesus and speak in tongues, just like we see in Acts chapter 2. Have you ever heard that one? It's not that speaking in tongues is wrong. It's just that it has nothing to do with salvation. There is a gift. In fact, there's a couple of different ways of looking at the speaking in tongues. It can be a prophetic word from the Lord delivered to someone who is listening intently. And the Lord has a word for them, and it comes in an unexplainable prayer tongue. It can also mean that you are speaking in a language fluently that you've never been trained in. So it's not that there isn't a gift of tongues. There's a couple of different gifts of tongues, and Paul teaches clearly how to use those gifts and and how the church can be blessed by those gifts, but they have nothing to do with salvation. So when someone comes to a local church and says, repentant faith in Jesus Christ is always evidenced by or plus speaking in tongues, they're trying to sell you something. Now they're in control of your salvation because maybe the way you speak in tongues isn't good enough. Maybe you don't do it often enough. Maybe you do it too often. Maybe you do it too quietly. Maybe you do it too loudly. Now who's in control of your salvation experience? Jesus plus something. It's nasty. It's wrong. And they've twisted a truth of scripture. It's a form of heretical teaching. Here's another example. Repentant faith in Jesus Christ plus have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? Have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? You were baptized in water, but do you have a time when you can say that you were baptized by the Holy Spirit? Oh my gosh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is such a precious doctrine in the New Testament. It is true. It is real. It happens. It is the presence of the Holy Spirit overcoming and filling and stamping and anointing and preserving someone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ. It happens at the moment of salvation. 
but there are some texts that can be misread that make it sound like you're not really a Christian if you haven't had this experience of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now someone has started your salvation experience. And you need to seek something beyond repentant faith in Jesus Christ. It's a heretical teaching. And it's dangerous and it's evil because it is a scriptural truth that is taught in the Bible and it's so powerful and it's so encouraging and it can be so controlling because now somebody else is evaluating your experience of salvation. Repentant faith in Jesus Christ plus anything is the Antichrist. It's heretical teaching. It's wrong. There is no such, there's nothing beyond the Father acting in love sending his son, and then the power of the Holy Spirit coming as a testimony of the Father's love for the world. That's it. Repentant faith in Jesus Christ is where we get salvation from. Repentant faith in Jesus Christ plus anything is heretical regarding salvation. And sometimes people will like to add something to the purity of that gospel to manipulate and control people. And the danger of it is, is they are two critical concepts at once that have very different John says, don't buy into this. Regarding salvation, repentant faith in Jesus Christ, plus anything equals false teachers. Who are the false teachers amongst you? They're the ones on the tour. Probably know them, see them around. They haven't gone for a while, but now they're back. And this is the kind of stuff they're going to say. That repentant faith in Jesus Christ, plus something, and it's going to be false teaching. So he says, hey kids, let me explain this. It's, it's the end of the world. Like there's nothing that's going to happen beyond the revelatory truths that you have received. And hey, kids, relax. You already know what they're going to say when they come. So you don't need to worry about when these false teachers show up, because they're coming. And then finally, in verses 24 through 26, John writes, What you have heard from the beginning must remain in you. He says, hey, kids, (laughs) you haven't missed anything. These sweethearts, these first century Christians, they really loved Jesus, and they wanted to make sure that they were following him to the best of their ability, and if there was a new teaching out there, they wanted to be the first ones to adopt it. And John says, hey kids, (laughs) you haven't missed anything. What you have heard from the beginning must remain in you. If what you have heard from the beginning remains in you, then you will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he himself made to us, eternal life. I have written these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. And I think here is the trap that sometimes we fall into today, and maybe these first century Christians have fallen into as well. So John, you know, thank you for giving us the the 411 on the possibility of false teachers. Thank you for cluing us into the kinds of things that they're going to say. And thank you for encouraging us that we haven't missed anything. Here's the problem. I don't like being a Christian all the time. I kind of feel like I am missing something. Like my life isn't as awesome as it should be, even though I have placed my faith in Jesus Christ and I have repented to the best of my ability. And and because I feel like this gap in my actual day-by-day Christianity, I feel like there must be something more. And that's what makes these teachings so interesting to us, is the promise that maybe if we try a little harder to speak in tongues, maybe if we try a little harder to be filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit. Maybe if we fill in the devotional practice here, journal a little bit more, listen to Caleb more often, 
The temptation is, is our day-by-day experience sometimes is disappointing as men and women of faith. And so the temptation is, well, surely there must be something that I'm missing when we open ourselves up to the possibility of false teaching. Can I share a passage with you that I just, it just blows me away with just this powerful teaching. I don't have these words on the screen. It's found in Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. And here's what I'd like to show you from the biblical text. Doubts and disappointments as a repentant Christian who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ is normal. Let me say it again. Doubts and disappointments in your day-by-day life as a repentant follower of Jesus Christ is normal. Let me show you. Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. When Jesus had finished giving orders to his 12 disciples, he moved on from there to teach and preach in their towns. When John, his cousin, John the Baptist, not John the author of the book that we're studying right now, heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent a message by his disciples and asked him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect something else? Should we expect someone else? Please understand that John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets. Jesus goes on to say that there has never been a more righteous person on the planet of the earth, nor powerful, save himself, than John the Baptist. Long story short, if there's one person in heaven outside of Jesus, it's John the Baptist, right? He's a good guy. What's John saying? Are you the real deal or should we wait for someone else? He's actually saying that to Jesus. The one that he's been announcing. His sandals are not worthy to untie. God told me that when I see the presence of the Holy Spirit take the physical form of a dove and land on somebody and not move, that that is God's Messiah. And I'm telling you, behold the Lamb of God, it is Jesus Christ. That's John the Baptist. Right? Like in the world of good guys, he's Thor, he's Superman, he's Batman. He's Spider-Man. He's the Flash. He's all of them. Right? John the Baptist. Jesus, are you the real deal or is there someone else? Expressing doubts and disappointment in Jesus. The one that he's announced prophetically to the world. Listen to Jesus' reply. So when I say doubts and disappointment are normal, like you're in really good company if you have some doubts and disappointments about your day-by-day faith because you feel like you might be missing something and you're opening the door potentially jumping into a false teaching that might satisfy you. Jesus replied to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, those with skin disease are healed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. Basically, he says, just look at the obvious stuff. Like if you're having an existential crisis of faith, just look at the obvious stuff that's happening right now, and that should encourage you. But listen to what he goes on to say. And if anyone is not offended because of me, he is blessed. What is Jesus saying right there? In the Greek, if anyone is not scandalon of me, he is blessed. We get the English word scandalon. If you are not scandalized, if you don't trip over, if you don't 
stumble upon me, you are blessed. Why? Because the natural response to Jesus is, oh, heck to the next. Die to self, repent of my sins, live an accountable life, be obedient to the word of God. How about no? Like that's the normal response. Blessed are you if you are not scandalized. Blessed are you if you are not offended. That if you're able to work through the natural, understandable doubt and confusion about what it means to be a Christian and embrace me as your Lord and Savior, you are blessed. Because the normal response to Jesus Christ and the teachings of Scripture, the normal experience is to have some doubt, to have some confusion, to feel like maybe I'm missing something. That's normal. According to our Savior, in the experience of John the Baptist. Those of us who can work through those doubts, those of us who can work through those confusions, those of us who can work through those feelings of wondering if we're missing something, those are the ones who are blessed. It is normal as a Christian to be disappointed or confused or even a little angry by our day-by-day experience. If I have a personal relationship of the world, then why fill in the blank? If you don't feel that way, you're not thinking properly of Christianity. We should be a little scandalized. We should be a little confused. We should be wrestling with our faith. Blessed are those of us who remain faithful anyway. How does that happen? This is how John's confusion happens. Hey kids, you haven't missed anything. <laughs> Isn't it normal to be a little disappointed by your personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Let me tell you how to strengthen it right now. Verse 27. The anointing you received from him remains in you, and you don't need anyone to teach you. Instead, his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie. Just as he has taught you, remain in him. Here's what happens when we choose God confirms his choice in us. And while we may waver in the strength of our decision of faith, God's anointing remains the same. God's choice never changes. This is what it's referring to by the anointing. It can refer to the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer, absolutely. The biblical picture of anointing Uh, When you look at kings who are anointed, or prophets who are doing anointing, or Jesus himself who was anointed by Mary on the night before he was killed, what is always the picture when it comes to anointing? It's messy and smelly. (laughs) When we anoint someone for healing here at River Church, I just do a little dab on the forehead. That is not how the Bible anoints it. Take the coffee pot, fill it with oil, and do the Super Bowl celebration. That is a biblical anointing. Not with Gatorade, sticky water, but with oil. You are an oily mess for at least the rest of the day, if not the rest of the week, and everywhere you go, somebody got anointed. Like, it's obvious. The Old Testament says that an anointing would run down their hair and through their beard and onto their clothes. That's the anointing. It's understandable that when we choose to live a repentant 
living life of faith in Jesus Christ. That we question our own decisions. But God never questions his own decisions. When we make that decision of faith in the heavens, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are anointed. And when our Father looks at us in those moments of normal doubt and question, when we kind of would like a false teaching to come along to give us a new level of excitement for Christian understanding, to fill in our disappointment a little bit, <laughs> we're standing there dripping with the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. And what John is saying is remember that. Recall your testimony. Recall your anointing. Recall the time that you chose God. And more importantly, He chose you. Because that has not wavered. That has not changed. You're still a hot mess in the eyes of God. You're drippy and smelly and sticky. That's just the way the Lord wants you. And allow that to encourage you when our vision of God begins to waver and we have doubts, remembering that He chose you and has covered you in the presence of His Holy Spirit. The anointing you receive from Him remains in you, and you don't need anyone to teach you. You know that you know that you know that you know that you're a Christian. His anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, just as he taught you and it remains in you. And so this morning, by way of conclusion, hopefully that is encouraging word. That's how John meant it. Hey kids, it's the end of the world, but I'm going to tell you about it before it happens. Hey kids, Here's where the false teachings are going to come from. Hey, kids, here's what they're going to say. Hey, kids, here's how you dig deep when you're disappointed and sad. There's a lot of good stuff there for us. For some of us, maybe we are realizing this morning, I never chose Jesus. I, I haven't experienced any of that stuff, or, or, or I think I have, but now I realize, no, I was just following man-made rules and kind of going along with the flow. And I, I need that initial anointing. I, I need to choose Jesus. And for those of us this morning, if there's anyone here that has never accepted Jesus Christ, who is not living a repentant life of faith in Jesus, plus nothing that sounds like this, Heavenly Father, I am too easily confused. I am too easily disappointed. I am too easily led astray. I want to choose you in this moment, knowing that you are choosing me in turn, and that your choice is the one that actually matters, and I want my life to be marked by your anointing, by your power, by your presence. Forgive me for the stuff that I've done to try and fill in the gap that was always supposed to be you and cover me with the presence of your Holy Spirit. So I'm going to pray and we'll have an opportunity to sing one more song. Would you join me as I pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for guys like John who just have this seasoned, old, mature approach to faith that talk us through really scary stuff that we can't even begin to understand without someone like him in our lives. So Father, thank you for recording it for us. Thank you for blessing and teaching. Thank you for inspiring your word. Thank you for the opportunity we have this morning to refresh our memories of what you have written for your church. And Father, I pray this morning that we would be strengthened